This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Brad Nordholm, President and CEO of Farmer Mac. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Foreign subsidies are a threat to the U.S. sugar industry. Learn more about the Zero for Zero bill at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Farmer Mac's Brad Nordholm next. America's sugar growers are among the most efficient and sustainable in the world. But billions of dollars in foreign sugar subsidies distort the global market and put U.S. producers at a disadvantage. Weakening America's no-cost sugar policy without first reforming the global sugar market would hurt family farms, jeopardize good-paying jobs, and weaken the supply chain that puts sugar on consumers' tables. A new bill called Zero for Zero takes action to zero out all foreign subsidies and level the playing field. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Out of the ashes of the farm crisis of the 1980s, Farmer Mac was born. President and CEO Brad Nordholm says the farm economy does show similar symptoms to the crash of the 80s, but those have been stymied by good demand and other solid fundamentals in the farm economy overall. So the, the whole genesis behind the creation of Farmer Mac was to provide a secondary market for mortgage loans that would increase liquidity and product offering for uh, people across rural America. And this includes farmers, ranchers, agribusinesses, commercial agribusinesses. More recently, it has also been expanded, and I'm talking about 13, 14 years ago now, uh, expanded to include rural electric cooperatives and some types of renewable energy projects, which, when you think about it, are really essential infrastructure serving the people of rural America. We're crystal clear that we're here to provide a source of debt capital purchase. It's always mortgage secured, but debt capital purchase uh, from these various um, people and institutions across rural America so that we really can increase or improve the economic development opportunity in rural America. How do you see the ag economy positioned now against the challenges that we face? Until a handful of months ago, there was probably more bullishness about American agriculture, production agriculture, on average, than we've seen in a number of years. And that was due to high commodity prices and, you know, until very recently, input costs were relatively stable. But what we've seen more recently, which really is causing concern, is that we have seen a slide in uh, the major agricultural commodities. And at the same time, and this is a little bit reminiscent of the production cost squeeze of the early 80s, at the same time we've seen, well, fertilizer prices, for example, are up about threefold over the last year. Higher costs for energy, up nearly 40%, for example. And so these are pain points that, you know, given the fact that we're here solely to provide capital for the economic development of rural America. These are pain points that are of great concern to us, without question. But having said that, I I would note that there are some, I think, fundamental differences from the conditions in the mid-'80s that, uh, among other things, resulted in the creation of Farmer Mac. 
we're going into this with much more stored liquidity on the balance sheets of most producers. We're going into this with lower overall interest rates. Now, yes, they may increase, but right now they're still very low. We're going into this with strong land values, a lot of excess collateral value in land. You know, we are optimistic that some of these run-up in input costs will reverse themselves over the next year, year and a half, as supply chains do get corrected. And one other thing I would like to note, and, you know, this does not get a lot of attention, but in my 40-year career, I started out in agriculture mortgage credit, and so I had a front-row seat. But in the early 80s, American farmers, whether they're borrowing from farm credit or from a commercial bank, they had variable rate loans. There were not fixed rate loan products. And so when Paul Volcker, uh, chairman of the Fed, uh, squeezed interest rates, you know, federal, uh, short-term federal rates went over 12%. When he squeezed interest rates, all that ended up being pa- passed through to farmers and ranchers. Today, over the last couple decades, Farm Credit System and Farmer Mac and others have been innovative and disciplined in creating fixed-rate mortgage loan products. And, in fact, we've been encouraging customers in that direction this year. And so a much higher portion of the mortgage debt that is out there is fixed-rate rather than variable-rate, which was the case on exclusive basis almost 40 years ago. So what obstacles do you see now that are most ominous, and how are they challenging, or are they challenging, your customer base? Certainly getting through supply constraints. There are producers who are having issues getting inputs. There are agribusinesses that are having issues getting inputs, getting labor, getting uh, trucking for moving product. And, and, you know, that has to do with shipping supply constraints. It has to do with over-the-road truck uh, constraints. It has to do with other types of bottlenecks. This is a real concern because, you know, if, if you go down to a local feed store or are ordering, um, you know, bulk inputs if you're an agribusiness or even a rural electric cooperative, and they tell you, hey, that, that's not available for six months or it's only available at a, at a price that's two or three times what it was last year, that is um, a very ominous issue for many producers and agribusinesses. So do you fear land values are at risk through this cycle that we're seeing now? Well, in the long run, land values should be a function of the free cash flow and the alternative rates of interest, we could call them cap rates, available to a producer who's a good producer on that particular type of land. If you were to value land based just on 2022 forecasted results, you might say, yeah, you know, we gotta, we gotta do that. But the reality is that land values right now are holding up very well. There's more demand for land than there is available land. And you can come up with all kinds of reasons for that. Um, older owners that prefer to lease and not sell for tax or other reasons. There's just not a big supply of land coming into the market. And so when land does come into the market, there tend to be producers who uh, maybe have adjacent properties, maybe have coveted that land for some time, who are providing that liquidity and who are willing to bid aggressive uh, prices for that land. 
So we are not seeing the real devaluation of land. In fact, in some areas, land values are hot. Uh, overall, pretty flat. I think our assessment is that continuing right up to the third quarter of 2021, we have seen over the last two years, national average increases in land prices of about 7%, you know, which is a little bit less than that which was experienced. I just note, you know, back in the 79 to 81 period of time prior to that, you know, mid 80s farm crisis, when uh, values were were bid up and and well above levels that were justified based on the uh, earning power of that land. Aside from the availability of input supplies and the price of input supplies, uh, how do you see inflation in this inflationary period, especially if it extends much further? How does that affect agriculture? Yeah, well, the, the the issue is with the price of inputs inflating at a faster rate than prices for the agricultural commodities that are produced. So that's where it really becomes an issue. And subject to being able to get inputs, and I talked about some of the challenges of that, which, you know, we think will be resolved over the next 12 to 18 months. Aside from that, the biggest factor impacting the price of agricultural products, frankly, is exports and demand from overseas markets. Let's face it, you know, the the world population continues to grow. There has been a significant increase in wealth in much of Asia to a lesser extent than South America. That has resulted in increasing demand for meat proteins, which, you know, the multiple that results in in terms of increased demand for feeds. So uh, ultimately, if that demand uh, continues at a, at a strong clip, we could see prices and input costs escalate to preserve a decent net margin for the producer. Now, that's you know, my optimistic scenario. And that doesn't mean that for certain types of products and for uh, certain geographic areas around the United States, uh, there could not, there, there may not be uh, sub- significant pain uh, over the next 12 to 18 months because of input prices continuing to rise faster than product prices, uh, as we've seen in the last few months. The Fed is suggesting some easing of support for the economy, and also the question that the financial market has been asking uh, is when interest rates may be an increase, how far to the horizon there. Is there any particular Fed action that you fear or favor? Well, personally, I feel that the overall U.S. economy will benefit from more market-based uh, interest rates than has been the case since the onset of the pandemic when uh, market interest rates have been realized at really at below market interest rates because of the Fed's, Fed's massive purchases of many types of uh, debt securities in the market. The Fed has flooded the market. So I am actually a proponent for easing into more of a free market approach in our bond markets with the demand of buyers, not the Fed, balancing the supply of new bond issues and setting interest rates. You know, the, the, the Fed can influence, uh, from a monetary standpoint, can influence uh, the short end of the curve, or as it's been doing recently, it can have massive purchases of securities and influence uh, rates across the curve. As that gets out of that second function of uh, 
uh, purchasing uh, uh, debt securities issuances across the curve and just focuses the short end, then we will have market forces really setting those intermediate and long-term interest rates. I think that will be healthy for the overall U.S. economy. And in the long run, it will be healthy for uh, agricultural producers, too, because it will take some of the heat off some of these inflationary pressures. How much more important is data for producers today, and how is that increased data important for lenders like yourselves and others that serve farmers? Well, I I think it's very important because uh, data leads to better decision-making for producers. So, for example, having data that includes soil types, first-last frost, moisture content, variable moisture content throughout the year, you know, allows supports decision-making for optimal crops. It also can identify areas on a farm uh, producer's land that may not be profitable. So, you know, that's a simple example of, of why data can be very, very important to producers. Here at Farmer Mac, as I mentioned before, we're here to serve uh, the economic development of rural America. Again, we're not imposing, you know, standards or requirements uh, at all. We, we want to serve you know, anyone who we deem to be reasonably creditworthy. But we do have sufficient interest in this that um, we recently made a joint venture financial commitment to a company called Ag Analytics. And they specialize in capturing uh, data. They can uh, basically show you uh, data. Uh, it's, all, it's a lot of it is satellite-derived uh, for basically any square meter of land, arable land uh, in the United States. That becomes a very powerful tool, not just for us to use to better understand um, what a particular producer is doing, but to, uh, with the real-time monitoring of production with satellite technology, it gives us the ability to monitor how that particular end borrower, that producer, is doing. And it also gives us something that we can potentially provide as a service to that producer. So, uh, yeah, we are keenly interested in this and see it as, uh, you know, a, a big and rapidly growing area of focus for uh, American agriculture. I think it's uh, a simplistic analogy to say that it's a little bit uh, like uh, logistics management and how that has all been optimized from how you know Amazon manages their warehouses and supply chains and deliveries and and makes optimal decisions every single step of the way but it's not a it's not a terrible analogy in that you're using better information to make better decisions and that's good for everyone so from your vantage point what policy or plans do you see as needed to assist this next generation of farmers to acquire assets and to take over the reins in the next generation of this business? That is such an important question, isn't it? These tend to be well-educated, experienced operators, probably grew up at the farm You know, from a young age. They want the lifestyle, but they also want to apply skills that they've learned as members of a, of a farm household, as uh, in, in university, in, in postgraduate um, uh, operations, and um, you know this this really is the future. Uh, it's so important, and so the 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 big issue 
you know, and we get challenged about this all the time. We said, oh, couldn't you just make larger loans? Well, debt isn't always the solution for helping a younger, less well-capitalized uh, farmer uh, acquire um, land assets and, and get control, long-term control of operation. Um, certainly, if there are you know good loans to be made, great. We don't want to straddle that producer with unrealistic levels of debt. And so we're intrigued by, you know, a few pilot programs that we've seen springing up, uh, some with farm credit in New England, for example, some with some uh, venture funds in other parts of the country where um, we're, we're investors, and they may be strategic or affiliated investors, a farm bank, for example, or maybe for profit, but they provide um, a, a slug of equity capital that doesn't have to be paid today. Um, so let's just say it's a million-dollar piece of land. Let's say that a prudent first mortgage loan on that piece of land is uh, six hundred to seven hundred thousand, leaving three hundred to four hundred thousand. Let's say that young operator can cobble together, you know, a hundred thousand. But you know that there's a gap there of two, three hundred thousand uh, dollars, which is a lot of money. And uh, if if that can be filled with a third party who says, you know, uh, I, I I'm, I'm mission driven. Uh, uh, I believe this is the future of American agriculture. I'm willing to take a five to ten percent compounding return over, say, a ten year period of time, and then provide that younger uh, owner operator an opportunity to refinance and refinance me out with that accrued uh, interest or gain uh, at that time. That's that's a model that um, I think does make some sense. Obviously, the very best models are when it can be uh, an older generation family member uh, selling to a younger generation family member, but um, that doesn't always exist. Is carbon sequestration as a revenue source for farms and ranches a realistic revenue stream for farmers? You know, what the, the, the producers I talk about with carbon pricing at say $25 a ton, which is a, you know, pretty common number that's thrown out there. Um, there are two issues. One is that, um, you know, there are many firms who are, uh, promoting carbon sequestration and per- the purchase of carbon credits from farmers. And, uh, we don't yet really have a dominant uniform standard for how you measure that. Um, now, I don't want to be critical of the people who are out there uh, trying to make that happen right now because I think sooner or later we will get, either through competition among them or through a federal standard, we will get to a, a dominant standard. But the second issue is that when you look at the revenue stream, it, it, it's, it's not enough to uh, materially change the overall practice. You know, we're seeing a, a general trend in the number of Farmers and ranchers who over the years, recent years, have moved to low-till and no-till practices. Uh, we are seeing, you know, more uh, certainly discussion and experimentation with cover crops. Uh, in some cases, that is for uh, soil erosion control and for reduction of certain inputs in that farm and for overall uh, soil health purposes. Uh, in a few uh, instances, it is for um, carbon uh, capture. So uh, again, I go back to the fact that you know America's 
farmers and ranchers are are very smart. They they uh, have decades of experience making decisions that are right for them and their uh, particular uh, particular family and farm property. Um, and so, it, I don't think we're going to end up with you know all for one standards. I, I personally, I hope not. But at the same time, I certainly hope that we continue to see this experimentation and innovation uh, with um, some of these new practices, including cover crops, um, you know, for reasons that may include carbon capture, certainly include soil health, uh, certainly include erosion control, uh, many cases include reduction of inputs. Um, there, there are a myriad of reasons why, um, why this is important. Um, again, but without any one-size-fits-all. I'd like to focus one last question on the West in a particular region of the country. Uh, producers yep. in the West, in the Southwest, in California, not only have they suffered from drought, but they've also been suffering through this pandemic. Do you yep. see any significant change with regard to that agriculture not just the producers, but the infrastructure that thrives and supports it. That is a huge question. We just had board meetings, and uh, a couple of our top executives have been out in California, uh, really meeting with people on the ground, talking about that very issue, as well as doing a lot of very impressive desktop uh, research. And you know, the 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 current situation um, is not dire, uh, 2021. But I think the fear is. If these heavy precipitation weather events that we've seen the last two weeks, um, which are just making a dent in the deficiency out there, if they don't continue uh, and we have a, a yet another year of drought in 2022, it can be pretty, it's going to be pretty bad. And um, bad in the sense that there will be some producers who just won't be able to continue. I think that, you know, there's probably some growing awareness that um, having some diversification in operation in Central Valley of California, for example, or Arizona, for example, some diversity um, is, is, is a good thing, uh, particularly if that diversity, diversification of crops allows uh, the producer to take a section um, that may be row crop, not permanent nut crop, but row crop, um, fallow for, for, for a year uh, during a, a period of, of heightened drought. This is requiring uh, many people to really look at, you know, primary and secondary sources of water that producers have, you know, how long have those rights been in place, how reliable are they, um, and boy, again, every every situation is different. It's something that we are monitoring very carefully. Well, Brad Nordholm, we want to thank you very much for taking time to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. Brad, it is Open Mic, and today you've got the last word. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not say, as I always do, that Farmer Mac's mission is to improve the overall uh, economic development opportunities in rural America. Uh, we're trying to do a lot of new things to fulfill that mission even better, and uh We've got a lot of very passionate, committed people around here. I'm, I'm delighted to be part of this organization. I'm delighted to be part of this industry. Thank you so much for interviewing me. Our thanks to Brad Nordholm, President and CEO of Farmer Mac.
our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Foreign subsidies are a threat to the U.S. sugar industry. Learn more about the Zero for Zero bill at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Downley.